Hi, writers. Welcome to a new edition of our podcast. I'm glad you're here. This is Jim Thayer. Many novelists use a tie-up-later list. They're also known as loose-ends lists or a plot-thread tracker. Charles Dickens made such a list, calling it General Mems, for working around his story where he listed what he called, quote, the strings I need to pull together. Neil Gaiman has said, I keep a list of things I want to tie up later. I'll write down a name or a phrase or a description of something, and then I'll forget about it until I need it. It's a way of keeping track of all the little threads that I'm weaving together in a story. That's Neil Gaiman. This list prevents loose ends, and the reason we don't want loose ends is that a novel should be a circle. All questions should be answered at the end of the novel. A tie-up-later list is is a document, usually listing chapter-by-chapter items that need to be addressed by the story's last page. When something is added to a story that isn't immediately explained or that uh, doesn't have an obvious purpose, uh, purpose, it's likely that uh, that item should be added to a tie-up-later list, your tie-up-later list, so uh, the writer won't forget about it. A tie-up-later list reads like this. Chapter 8. 1. Explain later why Margaret carries a knife in her purse. 2. Explain later why Margaret opened the car's trunk to look inside before getting into the car. 3. Tell later how Stan knows what a needle valve in a fuel injector is. Each of these things, carrying a knife, looking into a car trunk, uh, how a character might know what a needle valve is, isn't normal behavior in real life. The the reader will remember these things because the reader is always looking for clues. And not just in mysteries or thrillers. Uh, Readers look for clues in all genres. Readers want to anticipate the plot and character developments. It's part of the fun of reading. And so readers will focus on these little things in the story that don't quite fit, uh, aren't quite normal, Uh, that need to be explained. Uh, The writer, and often her characters, uh, know know things the reader doesn't. The writer keeps things from the reader. Readers know this, and so they look, trying to figure out things. The reader will feel shortchanged if he or she have uh, find things that aren't explained by the end of the novel. I want to read a part of a scene I wrote a couple minutes ago. Keep an eye out for things that you, as the the reader, would expect to be tied up later by the end of the novel. I'm going to exaggerate their obviousness to make a point. Exaggerate their obviousness. That's the flabbiest phrase you'll hear this week. Here Here are a couple of sentences. Owen ran his hand along the horse's back, brushing away several burrs that had lodged there. 
he threw the saddle pad over the horse, squaring it. As he always did at this point, he scratched behind Brownie's ear, and the horse nickered. On went the saddle, and Owen tightened the girth, leaving room enough for two fingers between the horse and the girth. He cinched the breast collar. You ready to go, Brownie, he asked. Six miles, piece of cake. Maybe we'll stop halfway to see Betty. What do you say? Owen pulled a bottle of red fluid from the leather pocket near the cantle, stared at it, then put it back. Trailing a hand along Brownie's side, he went to the front of the horse and lifted the horse's upper lip. The cowboy squinted as if that might allow him to see better. You don't look sick anymore. You're fine, looks like. He released Brownie's lip. He grunted as he lifted the saddlebags. Sorry, Brownie, this is heavier than usual, but you'll have to make do. I've made these obvious so as to make a point. The reader here has read about four things that are out of the ordinary, and they need to be explained, if not right then, certainly later. And these are, uh, who is Betty? Uh, What about the bottle of red fluid? What about Brownie's episode, possible prior sickness, and what's in the heavy saddlebags? So our our tie-up later list, it's a separate document on your computer. It reads uh, like this. Chapter 10. Explain later who Betty is. Explain what is in the bottle of fluid. Explain how and why Owen thought Brownie might have been sick. Explain what's in the extra saddlebags. Why are they so heavy? Uh, You as the writer might well have remembered to tie up these things. Certainly, maybe Betty. Maybe there's some romance involved and the writer is uh, is unlikely to forget to continue on with that plot point. But maybe not. There are a lot of things happening in a novel. Lots of plot, lots of threads, lots of little things to to write about and later to read about. Maybe Betty and maybe the other items could get forgotten as we write the story. The writer might forget, but the reader won't. Readers have remarkable memories for things like this because they believe the novel is always being salted with clues. And if Betty and the red bottle and the glance into Brownie's mouth and the extra heavy saddlebags aren't explained, the reader will wonder what happened. The reader will think things got sloppy and that the writer wasn't doing her job. It'll be unsatisfying for the reader. So we should keep a tie-up later list. Uh, I, I suspect you'll be really glad you did. And another thing on this topic, what if you get toward the end of the novel and you look at your tie-up later list and there's something, one or more things you've forgotten to tie up? Either tie up that loose end or feel free to go back to earlier in the story where that item was mentioned and delete it. Uh, That's often the easiest thing to do. Uh, We can delete the bottle of red fluid found in the saddle if we've forgotten about it and we determine near the end of the novel that it's not important. That's easy to do. So those are some thoughts on 
our tie up later list. Uh, as you know, I've been reading Mason Curry's good book, Daily Rituals. Uh, he writes about how creators, many of them novelists, work. And he says, Mason Curry says, that Maya Angelou has never been able to write at home. And she said, I try to keep home very pretty, and I can't work in pretty surroundings. It throws me. That's Maya Angelou. Uh, as a result, Mason Curry says, she has always worked in a hotel or motel room. Uh, the more anonymous, the better. Uh, Maya Angelou said in, a, in an interview some years ago, and this is uh, Maya Angelou, I usually get up at about 5.30, and I'm ready to have coffee at, by 6, usually with my husband. He goes off to his work around 6.30, and I go off to mine. Uh, I keep a hotel room in which I do my work, a tiny, mean room with just a bed and, uh, if I can find it, a face basin. I keep a dictionary, a Bible, a deck of cards, and a bottle of sherry in in the room. I try to get there around 7, and I work until 2 in the afternoon. If the work is going badly, I stay until 12.30. If it's going well, I'll stay as long as it's going well. It's lonely, and it's marvelous. I edit while I'm working. When I come, come home at 2, I read over what I've written that day, and then try to put it out of my mind. I shower, prepare dinner, so that when my husband comes home, I'm not totally absorbed in my work. We have a drink together and have dinner. Maybe after dinner, I'll read to him what I've written that day. He doesn't comment. I don't invite comments from anyone but my editor, but hearing it aloud is good. Sometimes I hear the dissonance, then I try to straighten it out in the morning. That's Maya Angelou. Uh, Mason Curry writes, uh, and this is Mason Curry, sometimes the intensity of the work brings on strange physical reactions. Her back goes out, her knees swell, and her eyelids, once swelled, completely shut. Still, she enjoys pushing herself to the limits of her ability. Quote, I have always got to be the best, she has said. I'm absolutely compulsive. I admit it. I don't see that's a negative. That's Maya Angelou in Mason Curry's book, Daily Rituals. I really like learning how good writers write and what their daily habits are. Maybe some of it will rub off on me. Here's another good writer. One of my favorite writers is Stephen King. Not only is he a wonderful storyteller, he is also technically a very strong writer. He tells big stories, and he tells them with a craftsman's skill. What a pleasure, even apart from his stories, what a pleasure it is to read his prose. He has famously said, can I be blunt on this subject? If you don't have the time to read, you don't have the time or the tools to write. Simple as that. That's Stephen King. Uh, in his book on writing, he continues uh, with this concept. This is Stephen King. If you want to be a writer, you must do two things, above all others. Read a lot 
and write a lot. There's no way around these two things that I'm aware of. No shortcut. Stephen King goes on, I'm a slow reader, but I usually get through 70 or 80 books a year, mostly fiction. I don't read in order to study the craft. I read because I like to read. It's what I do at night, kicked back in my blue chair. Similarly, I don't read fiction to study the art of fiction, but simply because I like stories. Yet there is a learning process going on. Every book you pick up has its own lesson or lessons, and quite often the bad books have more to teach than the good ones. Stephen King goes on, When I was in the eighth grade, I happened upon a paperback novel by Murray Leinster, a science fiction pulp writer who did most of his work during the 40s and 50s when magazines like Amazing Stories paid a penny a word. I had read other books by Mr. Leinster, enough to know that the quality of his writing was uneven. This particular tale, which was about a mine in the asteroid belt, was one of his less successful efforts. Only that's too kind. It was terrible, actually. A story populated by paper-thin characters and driven by outlandish plot developments. Worst of all, or so it seemed to me at the time, Leinster had fallen in love with the word zestful. Uh, a character watched the approach of ore-bearing asteroids with zestful stares. Characters sat down to supper aboard their mining ship with zestful anticipation. Near the end of the book, the hero swept the large-breasted blonde heroine into a zestful embrace. For me, it was the literary equivalent of a smallpox vaccination. I have never, so far as I know, used the word zestful in a novel or a story. God willing, I never will. Asteroid Miners, which wasn't the title, but that's close enough, was an important book in my life as a reader. Almost everyone can remember losing his or her virginity, and most writers can remember the first book he or she put down thinking, I can do better than this. Hell, I am doing better than this. What could be more encouraging to the struggling writer than to realize his or her work is unquestionably better than that of someone who actually got paid for his or her stuff? Stephen King goes on, One learns mostly what not to do by reading bad prose. One novel like Asteroid Miners or Valley of the Dolls, Flowers in the Attic, and The Bridges of Madison County to name just a, a few, is worth a semester at a good writing school, even with the superstar guest lecturers thrown in. Stephen, uh, Stephen King goes on, Good writing, on the other hand, teaches the learning writer about style, graceful narration, plot development, the creation of believable characters, and truth-telling. A novel like The Grapes of Wrath, may fill a new writer with feelings of despair and good old-fashioned jealousy. Quote, I'll never be able to write anything that good, not if I live to be a thousand. But such feelings can also serve as a spur, goading the writer to work harder and aim higher. Being swept away by a combination of great story and great writing, 
of being flattened, in fact, is part of every writer's necessary formation. You cannot hope to sweep someone else away by the force of your writing until it's been done to you. So we need to experience the mediocre and the outright rotten. Such experience helps us to recognize those things when they begin to creep into our own work and to steer clear of them. We also read in order to measure ourselves against the good and the great, to get a sense of all that can be done, and we read in order to experience different styles. That's Stephen King, uh, and this, that's from his book On Writing. Uh, on Writing is one of the best books I've ever read on writing and on living a life as a writer. Every page of On Writing is interesting. And Stephen King's point is terrific. We writers can learn by reading. I read fiction for pleasure, of course, but as I'm reading, I ask myself, why am I enjoying this so much? What is the writer doing here? Uh, these simple questions which try to teach me about writing, the answers, they don't ruin the pleasure of a great novel. When I'm reading for pleasure, I just try to pick out what works and what doesn't, and I try to learn from it. So I'm with Stephen King on this uh, subject, and that's good company to be with. And here's an example of learning from reading. I get enthused and I learn something when I read a master's description. Let me read a couple descriptions from Leo Tolstoy's War and Peace. I read the novel many years ago and I'm rereading it. Uh, listen to this. Listen to how a master writes. Hippolyte was surprising by his extraordinary resemblance to his beautiful sister but yet more by the fact that, in spite of this resemblance, he was exceedingly ugly. His features were like his sister's, but while in her case everything was lit up by a joyous, self-satisfied, youthful, and constant smile of animation, and by the wonderful classic beauty of her figure, his face, on the contrary, was, <laughs> was dulled by imbecility, and a constant expression of, self, of sullen self-confidence, while his body was thin and weak. His eyes, nose, and mouth all seemed puckered into a vacant, wearied grimace, and his arms and legs always fell into unnatural positions. That's Leo Tolstoy. Isn't that wonderful? Wouldn't that be fun to write? Sure fun to read. Here's another description from War and Peace. Listen to how Tolstoy does it. The Italian's face instantly changed and assumed an offensively affected sh sugary expression, evidently habitual to him when conversing with women. When Tolstoy takes after a character, he takes after him. Here's another description for him from War and Peace. Dolokhov was of medium height, with curly hair and light blue eyes. He was about 25. Like all infantry officers, he wore no mustache, so that his mouth, the most striking feature of his face, was clearly seen. The lines of that mouth were remarkably finely curved. The middle of the upper lip 
formed a sharp wedge and closed firmly on the firm lower one, and something like two distinct smiles played continually around the corners of the mouth. This, together with the resolute, insolent intelligence of his eyes, produced an effect which made it impossible not to notice his face. That's Leo Tolstoy. He's showing us how to do it. Here's another description. I'm, I'm concentrating on character descriptions from War and, Ple- uh, War and Peace. Sonia was a slender little brunette with a tender look in her eyes, which were veiled by long lashes, thick, ba- uh, thick black plates coiling twice around her head, and a tawny tint in her complexion, and especially in the color of her slender but graceful and muscular arms and neck. By the grace of her movements, by the softness and flexibility of her small limbs, and by a certain coyness and reserve of manner, she remained one she reminded one of a pretty half-grown kitten which promises to become a beautiful little cat. Isn't that wonderful? That's Leo Tolstoy. I think I'm a better writer having just read those. I, I hope so. I have been asked a couple times about this, uh, about this issue, and it's an important question. It's this. When I'm writing a novel where I plan to later write a sequel, should I leave holes in the first novel's plot that will be answered in the sequel? Uh, There might be other ways to look at the question, but let me give it uh, my best shot. The answer is no. Concentrate on the first novel. Tie up everything. Answer all the story questions you've raised in the first novel by the end of the first novel. The same considerations apply to this question as applied to uh, the tie-up-later list mentioned a bit ago. Readers want the circle to be closed. They want answers now, not later in a sequel, that may never be written, or if it's written, might be a year or more in the future. The reader will be unhappy if she gets to the end of a novel and there's a big plot hole. And here's the key. We, as the writer, can always find plot things in the first novel that, while answered at the end of the first novel, can be expanded in a sequel. There'll be lots of things in the first novel that are attractive and could be expanded. And while we explained points in the first novel, maybe more explanation would be entertaining in a sequel. So, and this is my take, and it's, it's not my way or the highway, we writers should probably focus on our first novel. Concentrate on it. Do the best we can. Fill in all the plot points. Review our tie-up-later list. And, f- and finish our novel as a complete story with all the questions answered. If there is occasion to write a sequel, we'll find many avenues in the first novel we can add, we can add to in the sequel. That's all for now. I'm still laughing about how Leo Tolstoy describes characters we the reader aren't supposed to like, and he does it with a knife. My email address is jimthayerseattle at gmail.com. I'll see you next time. This is Jim Thayer. Please keep tapping those keys.